I saw Jamie standing there. He was just angry and he was in pain and he was frightened and um, and I could feel the emotion coming off of him. Just he was going off. He was just yelling like, "What the hell's going on? Like, Mum, Mum, why? You know, why aren't you talking to me?" Kind of thing. In my mind, I'm saying to him, "Mate, I, ne- I need for you to calm down. I need you to come, come here, come closer to me." And he wouldn't move. And I'm saying, and he's still yelling. And I'm saying, mate, please, I really need for you to come. I need to talk to you. I need to explain something to you, sweetheart. And he was still getting, you know, he's just just agitated. And I said, mate, I, I need to tell you that you've died. Welcome to the Spirit Sisters podcast. My name is Karina Machado, and I'm the author of Spirit Sisters, Women's True Stories of the Paranormal. In this podcast, I'll revisit the women behind my most unforgettable stories and unearth new tales to chill, intrigue, astound, and offer hope. You'll hear first-hand accounts of ghostly visitors, near-death experiences, premonitions, hauntings, and love more powerful than death. Whatever you believe about the afterlife, I invite you to open your minds and hearts as ordinary women reveal their extraordinary encounters. You're listening to Spirit Sisters. I'm your host, Karina Machado. It's wonderful to have your company. Today's episode marks episode 50 of Spirit Sisters, the podcast, and I'm happy to say I have the perfect guest to mark the milestone. Shane Wallace, who lives with her family in Perth, WA, is one of the original voices from Spirit Sisters, the book. On the frigid night of June 1, 2007, beneath a full moon, mother of three Shane's eldest son, Jamie, was tragically killed in a motorbike accident. Jamie was only 16 years old. It's what happened in the hours that followed that makes Shane's story one of the most unforgettable in my whole body of work. Shane's story is heartbreaking, moving and tragic, yet ultimately uplifting, and it's very gratifying for me to know that it's only through interviewing Shane again for this podcast, 12 years after the book was published, that I was able to discover this last piece of her story, the piece about growth, healing, and the altering of ancestral patterns. Shane and I had so much to catch up on that we recorded two episodes. I'm honoured to present part one today of my reunion with Shane, whose story featured in a chapter in Spirit Sisters I called The Fiercest Loss. I named it that because I was so inspired by my conversations with these courageous mothers who'd all survived the unbearable. And yet, while their pain is fierce, fiercer yet is their enduring love. Hi, Shane. Welcome to Spirit Sisters. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, you know how excited I am to speak to you. I've been actually wanting to do this since I started this podcast, catch up with you. And I'm not actually sure why it took me so long, Shane, because we've been Facebook friends. It's not like you've been hard for me to get hold of. <laughs> but uh, I think timing, timing and circumstances plays a big role. That's what I was going to say, divine timing. So I'm really happy yeah. to have you here today. And I know the audience is just going to be overjoyed to hear your amazingly moving and profound story. 
So speaking of your story, Shane, it is one of the most unforgettable in the book, literally. It's one that people remember and comment on. That's something that I've certainly found. I think it would uh, be fitting to start our conversation, which is kind of like our reunion. So lovely. Uh, Start it the same way that your story begins in the book. So please tell us about what you experienced that night sitting with your sister on the back veranda of your home. It was three o'clock in the morning. It was a June night in 2007. Yeah, it was the police had been, obviously, to let us know that Jamie had been killed in a bike accident. Um, and we'd made a couple of phone calls once we kind of, yeah, I don't know, it was, it's, it's still to me such a surreal moment. We'd, we'd made a coffee and gone to sit outside because the kids were asleep and we didn't sort of want to disturb anyone until the morning. So um, we were sitting outside and we were talking and my sister had been on the phone talking to another family member just to let them know what, what had happened. And I'd, I'm not sure why, but because I'd been facing down the backyard, I just had an urge to look towards the pool and I saw Jamie standing there. And um, I didn't, it, it's hard to explain. It's not like he was physically standing there, but he was standing there. Um, and it was, it was almost like my mind had taken over and I was seeing, but not seeing like, like the veil had lifted or, or something, something. It was, it was really quite strange. And he was in a rage and he was, he was yelling and screaming at me and, um, you know, what the hell's going on, mum, and, and a few choice other swear words were thrown in there as well. And he was just, he was just angry and he was in pain and he was frightened and, um, and I could feel the emotion coming off of him. So it was more, I'm not sure if it was, a, I was physically seeing with him with my eyes or if it was my mind and I was feeling because the, the feelings and the emotion was so overwhelming that was coming from him that um, I wasn't sure what to do and I was looking I kept looking to my sister and she was just kind of she was on the phone and she was just kind of staring off you know in, towards the backyard and so I'd look back to Jamie and he was just he was going off he was just yelling like what the hell's going on like mum mum why you know why aren't you talking to me kind of thing and so I'd look from him and I'd look back at my sister and, and I think at some point that's when I realised that um, he's not aware of what's going on. He's not aware of what's happened. And so I've just sort of, again, in my mind, I'm saying to him, mate, I'm, I need for you to calm down. I need you to come come here, come closer to me. And he wouldn't move. And I'm saying, and he's still yelling. And I'm saying, mate, please, I really need for you to come. I need to talk to you. I need to explain something to you, sweetheart. And he was still getting, you know, he's just, just agitated. And I said, mate, I, I need to tell you that you've died. And he just sort of, it was like I'd slapped him. And he kind of just went quiet and then he just kind of disappeared. So it was, and, and I'm looking back at my sister and, and my sister's completely oblivious to any of, any of what's going on. So it's like it was happening in an alternate space. Yeah, so that's that's basically what happened. Later on, a friend of mine he'd, he'd actually when when Jamie because because the accident because it was so sudden and so unexpected, Jamie had been the, the only way I can describe it is he'd gone into a place that I call void, and it's a place where quite often people that have passed suddenly or violently um, they don't know what's happened. It's like their soul separates from their body and they're just in this in this space that. Um, 
um, that, that they don't understand, that I, I don't truly understand. I'm, I'm aware of its existence, but that's, that's as much as I know. And it wasn't until about four days later when a friend of mine rang me and said, hey, because I'd been talking to some of them, reached out to some of my spiritual friends and explaining what, what was going on. And um, my friend Tanya actually called and she said, hey, she said, I've, I've actually been sitting with Jamie. She said, I've sat with him for nearly two hours and I've finally convinced him to cross over <laughs> and, and explained what he was shouting at me because she said he didn't, he doesn't want to go. He just wants, he just wants you. He just wants to be with his mum. And, um, and that kind of made, made it make a bit more sense of what had happened on the, on the, you know, the early hours of that Saturday morning. She said, yeah, she said, he's a stubborn kid. She said it took over two hours, <laughs> but it was, it was a big relief for us because to, to see him in such anguish and, and pain was awful because I knew that, that we would have to try and find him some peace. Thank you so much for sharing that. And we're going to obviously build on that story and, and backtrack and explain to the listeners all of the, the history that goes with it, as well as not just Jamie's story, but your story of spiritual connection. You've been able to sense the spirit world since you were very tiny, Shane, and we'll talk about that. First things first, at that point that you had seen Jamie so vividly, such a such a powerful connection there, Shane, how long had it been since the police had informed you that he had actually passed away in the accident? It had been a few hours, um, but Jamie had actually died. Jamie had passed at 8 o'clock on the Friday night, and that was something that my friend Tanya explained to me. He had his spirit or his his soul, spirit, whatever, however you choose to, to call it. He'd actually walked from the accident scene the 30 kilometres to home and that's why it had taken um, so long for him to appear. I'd had a feeling, I, I knew that something bad had happened at 8 o'clock and I knew that he wasn't going to be coming home in the physical form. But um, it had taken him, he'd, he'd um, yeah, he'd, he'd basically, Tanya had explained to me, he'd basically walked home because he just, he didn't know what had happened and he just needed to get home to mum. It explains to us that he, in, in his mind, he was very much still in the physical. He didn't understand. Yeah, absolutely. He didn't. He had no understanding at all. And that's why it was so difficult to explain to him. Um, I don't know if he thought in that, in that moment, um, because he was still very much attached to his, his physical body as well. It, it had only just happened. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if he thought that I was being horrible to him or playing a prank on him or, or what he was. But it was, like I said, it was, it was like when I said to him, mate, you, you, you know, sweetheart, you've, you've died. It was like I'd slapped him in the face. It's an absolutely extraordinary scene to imagine. And I can't imagine as a mum your anguish in that moment and having to draw on your, your spiritual knowledge, but at the same time you're a mum and you know that, in the physical, you're not going to be able to see your son again, but yet you somehow summoned the courage and the strength to, to say those words to him, Shane, and I can't imagine how, how difficult and powerful that moment must have been for you. Yeah, it was, it was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. <laughs> but it was also that, again, it came back to, uh, I don't know, I've, I've been very fortunate in my life that I've always been able to carry an inner peace and even in hardest moments and the darkest moments, I'm, I'm able to access that and tap into it. And I'm able to close off to some emotion, which 
actually comes back and bites me later when I have to turn it back on. <laughs> but um, I, I think that that because of my experiences growing up and because of you know, you know childhood and, and the life that I've had, I'm, I feel fortunate that I'm able to access that because it's, be, it's been very important and very powerful in moments when I've needed to use that. And, and that night was probably one of, one of the first times that I had an awareness that I needed to, I, as much as I was hurting and in disbelief and in anger and in pain myself, I needed to, I needed to comfort him. I needed to, to make sure that he was okay because whether in the physical or the spiritual realm, that's, that's still my child. Of course, of course, that's very beautifully put. Now, you mentioned that you'd had a sense at, was it 8 p.m.? Yeah. It actually started about a week before. Jamie, Jamie had been quite troubled. There'd been an incident where he'd um, gotten hold of a bottle of bourbon a couple of, or a couple of months before. He'd, he'd gotten hold of a bottle of bourbon and drank the whole thing, jumped onto his cousin's go-kart and rode it out into a paddock and hit a rock and he was actually injured. He actually hurt his elbow and his leg and he was taken to Perth Children's Hospital by ambulance and, and I wasn't, I, he wasn't actually staying with me at the time. He was staying at my sister's. So we'd, we'd got into the hospital and the hospital had actually admitted him to a mental health facility because he was, um, as a small child, he was labelled with ADHD and all the, you know, all the, the letters and the numbers and whatever that comes with that. So he'd, he'd, been, he'd been placed into a mental health facility for about a month and we'd go and pick him up on the weekends and bring him home for the weekend and then, and then drop him back. And he started to get back on track. Then he'd um, he'd gone back to he'd, he'd gone back living with his dad, and that's where he discovered marijuana. So he then developed a marijuana habit, which got him into a bit of trouble and whatnot. And he was still drinking, and it was a, um, his relationship with his dad was more buddy buddy than sort of dad son relationship. He'd been living with his dad for about a year before we'd moved to Perth. So this had all this had all been sort of going on. So about, about five months before he died, he was accepted into a youth respite drug and rehabilitation program um, to try and get him back on track, try and get him to finish high school and, and that sort of thing. He was accepted into the program, but he was to do a two-week detox and then they didn't have space for him for another four weeks. So I went into bat with him because, again, as, as a parent, you advocate for your kids. So I went into bat and I said, well, look, we, we can't, you can't detox him and then send him back to the environment that he's been in. So we were able to actually fast track him. He actually did leave. He went into detox for two weeks and then he actually went up to Kalgoorlie to stay with my mum for two weeks to get him out of the environment that he'd been in. He came back to Perth and went into Eura and he was about, he'd been in Eura for about, for about four months. And he was, he was getting ready to graduate. And again, and there was an incident that happened. I'm not 100% certain what happened on that night, but I received a phone call um, and it was Jamie. And he said, I'm not staying here another minute. I can't, I can't do it anymore. And I said to him, mate, you, you're a week away from graduating. Like, this is, this is huge. You're, you're achieving your year 10 certificate. And he was adamant that he wasn't going to stay. And at the time, <laughs> My car had broken down and my partner was away. And, um, and I, as I said, I lived in Chidlow, so I was a good 30, 35 kilometres away from where he was. 
And I actually said to Jane on this night, I said, mate, if, if, you, if you can't stick out the week, I'm not sure what happens at the end of the week. Like, I'm not sure how we're going to be able to support you. And his reaction was, well, I'm not staying. I'd rather, I'd rather sleep on the streets than spend another night in this house. And he hung the phone up on me. So I said to, I, I left it for a few minutes. I rang back. I rang Yura back and got one of the, the night workers and said, look, you, you need to keep in there. I can't get in here tonight. I'll try and get in tomorrow morning. I, I just need, basically, I just needed a battery for the car. And he'd already left. So within minutes, he'd already, he'd already decided before he'd called me, his bag was packed. He'd actually grabbed his bag and left. And the support worker had said, if, if he's not back within 24 hours, we're back to square one. He can't, he can't just come back. So... So, yeah, that was basically, that was it. That was the last contact I'd had with Jamie. And I, so for the, for the next six days, we basically, um, and, and it was a funny thing, the night that phone call came, the night that Jamie rang and said, I'm, I'm out, I'm not doing this anymore. It was actually, it was actually the 30th anniversary of the passing of my father. So he actually ran away. He actually left the rehabilitation facility on the 30th anniversary of my dad's death. And we had no contact with him, but I drove. I'd, I'd go into Forestfield where he used to frequent. But the funny thing about Jamie, we had a connection where this was a child who I couldn't sneak up on and he couldn't sneak up on me. We just knew, intuitively knew that, you know, like I'd, I'd turn around and you go, oh, I still can't get your mum sort of thing. He would, he would have his little episodes where he'd take off from school. Um, I'd be down in Perth doing some business and be driving home and think oh and for whatever reason cut through Forestfield or cut through and nine times out of ten I'd come across Jamie walking down the road and be like get in the car <laughs> so it was really it was really bizarre this week because it was like he'd it was like he turned his radar off so that I couldn't find him but I wasn't able to find him so the the, the feelings of unease and dissonance and panic had actually started on the that was the 27th of May um, that he'd left um, so we'd, we'd drive in contacted all of his friends his friends knew of his his history and, and you know the, the troubles that he'd been having with his dad so they all went into protection mode so some of his friends because he was 16 so some of his friends had actually seen him and actually knew where he was but they weren't they thought they were protecting him. They weren't, they weren't aware that, that he was safe with me because they didn't know me. I'd been in Perth a year. Um, we hadn't built a relationship with, any of, with a lot of his friends. It was weird because we'd go looking for him and couldn't find him. My sister Chuse would go, you know, because she, she lived in Forestfield, Rottle, Rottle Grove area. She'd sort of be like, I'm keeping an eye out for him on my way to and from work and doing a quick drive around the suburbs and, and whatnot. But this feeling of unease and, and and by the Friday, it was, it was full on panic. It was like, I just had this, this feeling that something really bad was going to happen. And that came from, I know it's, it's a weird thing to say, but I kind of always knew that Jane wouldn't live past 16. It was just a, like, a, I've got to do everything I can for this child because he's not going to be, he's not going to be an adult. And he'd said that himself. Um, at his appointment, at his, at his initial appointment at Eura, when we were booking him into the, to the rehabilitation facility, one of the ladies asked him, 
where do you see yourself, you know, in five years' time? And his answer was, I don't. So that was, that was possibly the spark all those months earlier that really got me like, we need to get on top of this. We need to get this kid healthy. We need to, you know, we need to set up support and structure and, and whatnot for him. So by the Friday morning, I'd woken up on the Friday morning and it had been like five or six days since Jamie had left the rehabilitation unit. None of his friends were giving us any information. Um, they weren't talking to us at all. We hadn't been able to, you know, randomly happen upon him, which had always happened previously. So Brayden had had, I'm not sure where Sinead, Sinead was probably at home. She was only six when he died. So Jamie's two siblings, Brayden, who was, yes. how old was Brayden? Was Brayden was 13 and Sinead was six. I, I think uh, Brayden was at home with his friend Michael. I think I'd said to him, I need you to keep an eye on Sinead. I'm just going to duck in the tower. And Brady said, what, what are you doing? I said, he said, have you heard from Jamie, Mum? And I said, no, I haven't. And I said, it's been too long. It's, you know, I said, I'm actually, um, I grabbed a photo. It was, it was one of the last photos that we'd had an old, one of those cameras that had just come out and you could dock them and print the photos. And a couple of nights before, <laughs> Jamie and Sinead had been on the back veranda and Jamie had, he was using a straw and placing it under his armpit to teach Sinead how to do armpit baths. <laughs> so <laughs> that was the, the photo that I grabbed <laughs> and I've driven to the Mundaring police station and I've actually listed him as a missing person that was 11 o'clock on the Friday morning and again my panic it's it's I'm trying hard to access this inner peace but the panic's bubbling under the surface so I remember I remember walking into the police station presenting calm but just being an absolute mess on the inside and sitting down and filing the missing persons report. And the young constable, cadet constable, that took the report, she's like, oh, oh, you know, this happens all the time. And, you know, kids, you know, do things, you know, they, he'll, I'm sure he'll be home. And so she's trying to placate me, beautiful girl. She must have been all of 18 herself. <laughs> and I've given her the photo and we've registered the missing person report. And I basically went back home. And it was strange because coming back, driving back through Chidlow's, another little community up in the hills, not a, not a huge population, lots of, um, you know, beautiful trees and land and whatnot. And driving through the town, as I've come past the shop, there was this massive crows just flew out of a tree and flew across the road. And my panic turned to dread at that moment. So I basically just drove home and kept myself busy all day. Shanae and I did some baking. Um, Braden and his friend Michael rode into town. So I sort of said, oh, well, um, you know, if you want to have a sleepover, because I was trying to remain calm and do everything I could to not unsettle the kids. Jeff, I'm not sure where Jeff was. He was actually home. It was one of the few times that he was actually home for the weekend. My partner, Jeff, yeah, so he, I'm guessing he was probably up at the shed or, or doing, he likes his shed very much. <laughs> so, yeah, just got home and just got busy. Um, at the time, I actually had like a, a new age retail type shop where um, I did a lot of markets and things like that. We sold crystals and oils and I used to make a lot of handmade key rings and things. So for the rest of that day, I basically just in between baking with Shanae and, and looking out for the kids and, and tending to their needs, I, I basically sat at my desk and I just made jewellery. I made key rings, I made jewellery, I made, I blended up some essential oils and I just, I just kept myself busy. 
So, yeah, we got to, I think it was about 7.30 and the dread was still there. It was coming and going in waves. Um, Sinead said that she wasn't feeling well, um, so she'd gone off and she'd gone off to bed. Whatever Braden was doing, probably watching television or whatever. Sinead went off to bed, so Jeff said, oh, well, I'll go and hop into bed with Sinead and um, make sure that she's okay, you know, sort of just keep an eye on her. Um, so I was sitting at my desk and I remember looking out the window and it was, it was a cold, it was a really cold night, 1st of June 2007, and it was cold and it was raining and there was a full moon. And I kept glancing up from what I was doing and I was looking at the full moon and thinking to myself, I wonder where Jamie is, is he inside, is he warm, is, you know, is he okay? And just looking at the moon and kind of hoping in a way that he was looking at the moon and thinking of coming home. Then at a couple of minutes before eight o'clock, I got this searing pain in the centre of my chest and I wasn't sure what it was and it just, it was, it was started off as like a little bit of a burning sensation and then it just built and built and built. I actually dropped my jewellery pliers and picked up the phone and dialed my friend Debbie and I thought, oh, no, I'm just being silly. So I hung the phone up and put it down. And um, as I put the phone down, I've heard Jeff on the landing outside the office and he's just gone running past the landing. And I've said to him, what's going on? Are you okay? And he said, Sinead's just sat up in a bed and vomited. And I went, oh, okay then. So I put the phone down and, and the flies and I've got up from the desk and I've gone to attend to her and I've got this pain in my chest. And in my mind, I've just gone, I need for this pain to stop. I need this pain to stop right now because I need to, I need to get on with dealing with whatever's going on with Shanae. And it kind of did. It kind of stopped as abruptly as it came on. And I didn't think much more of it. Um, my mind distracted with taking care of her. So we've, we've, we've dealt with what we needed to deal with with her and got her settled again. I went and sat on the couch and, and watched a bit of telly with Brady. And then he's headed off to bed. So I went back to my office and, and I remember just sitting so just sitting there, just looking out the window at this full moon and just praying and saying to Jane, I need you to come home. Like, it, I need you to come home. It's, um, you know, we're, we're here, we'll support you. So about 11.30, I kind of gave up and I was like, I, I don't know what else to do. And I'm sitting there and I'm still feeling this dread and I'm still praying, you know, and talking to Jamie and saying, mate, I just need you to come home. So I've grabbed the house phone and gone to go to bed and then I've come back and grabbed my mobile phone as well. And I've ended up going and jumping in. Jeff was asleep in bed with Sinead, so I went and jumped into bed with them. And then it was about 2 o'clock when the phone rang. And I'd sort of, I'd sort of laid there at 11.30 and I thought, oh, I, I don't know. But at some point I've obviously drifted off to sleep. And then the phone rang and um, it was my sister Tuesday. And she said, hey. Um, I need you to come and open the door. I need you to let me in. One part that I haven't mentioned is about 8.30, Tuesday had rung me and she'd said, hey, we've just got home. We've been out for dinner. Um, we've just got home and the shed door's open and Tristan's motorbike's gone. And she said, we've come through an accident scene on Tonkin Highway. And um, she said, we've gone through an accident scene. It looks pretty bad. She said, I just saw this shoe in the centre of the road. And at that moment, in my, in my mind's eye, I saw an image of Jamie's white shoe with the red stripes. 
and um and she'd actually had the same image she'd actually told me later she said I had she said as soon as I as soon as I saw that shoe I saw a flash of Jamie and I'd actually said to her it's um it's Jane too something's happened to Jamie I need I need to um yeah you need to call the police and she's gone, oh, no, no, don't be silly. And I'm like, I'm telling you, choose. I know. I know that something's happened. I know that something's wrong. Um, I said, I've been uneasy all day. I said, I've listed him as a missing person this morning. I said, the only person who would come and take the motorbike would be Jamie. Something's happened to Jamie. We kind of did talk on and off through the night. I'd said to her, my, my poor mum, <laughs> my poor mum was on a plane bound for Mauritius for her birthday celebration. She'd... Um, yeah, she was on a plane. We weren't able to get her off the plane because at that point Jamie hadn't been formally identified. So we had to we had to let her continue on. We had to recall her like 24 hours later in Mauritius and say, hey, we actually need you to come home. Um, this is what's happened. So that that was that was a difficult phone call to make. Mum and Jamie were extremely close. I was 17 when I had Jamie and I lived at home. So she was um yeah, he was a big part of her life. So, so Chus and I had kept in the last phone call that I'd made that I'd had with Chus before I'd decided to go to bed that night. I didn't know at the time, but um, she had rang the police and, and reported the motorbike stolen. And they said to her, look, we believe this is, you know, the person who was on the bike. And she said, that's my nephew. So the last phone call I had to her and she said it was extremely, extremely difficult. She was actually in the police car on the way to the hospital to ID Jamie that was about midnight but she wasn't allowed to tell me that that's where she was or that's where she was going because they and I, and I understand I didn't understand at the time but I understand now that they, they can't make a mistake with something like that so um she was yeah she was extremely hurt and, and I'm on the phone and I'm like I'm telling you it's Jamie I'm, I said I'm saying to her I'm going to jump in the car and come in she's like no 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 don't do that don't come in and um, she's been coached by the police what to say to me <laughs> and it's breaking her heart so um yeah she turned up they, they turned up about two in the morning and I've let them in and I knew I, I knew straight away like I'd, I'd known all day what I didn't know what was coming but I knew it wasn't going to be good so again I let the let choose in I let the police in and I went about busying myself I put the dogs out I went and got a log of wood and put it on the fire and I was running around, you know, busy, busy, because I didn't want to hear, I didn't want to know. And Constable Anthea, beautiful, beautiful human being, she actually came and grabbed me by the shoulders and made me sit at the kitchen table and she said, sweetheart, we've got something to tell you. And I'm like, I'm just going, don't, don't say it, don't say it, don't tell me, I, I don't want to know, don't, don't tell me, I don't want to know. And she said, your son Jamie has been killed in a bike accident at eight o'clock this evening which is the time that Janae was vomiting and I was having chest pain and yeah so and I remember looking at her and just saying to her I, I, and looking at my sister and saying I told you I told you it was Jamie I knew I knew what had happened and the young the young police officer with Anthea she's kind of freaked out at this point and she's gone to Anthea how does she know and Anthea's gone sweetheart mum's just gone so, um, so, yeah, that was around two. So it was around probably around 3.30 when we were sitting on the back veranda. We'd made a couple of phone calls that we thought were most important and then we figured we'd let everyone else sleep the rest of the night before we hit them with what we were about to tell them. So, um, 
yeah, we were outside having probably my fifth cup of coffee in an hour <laughs> when um, when Jamie appeared. Did you tell Tuesday, your sister, that you'd seen him? Once, once that it all sort of finished and my brain, I mean, my, my brain's trying to process the incomprehensible um, and she was talking to someone on the phone at the time that this was all happening and once she'd put the phone down, I've grabbed her hand and I'm like, did you see him? And she's like, what? And I said, Jamie, did you see him? He was here. And she just said, no, I didn't, sweetheart, but I believe you. Because she's, Chuse has, Chuse and I are the closest, we're the, we're the, the youngest siblings. There's seven years age gap between us, but we've always been, I've always told her of my experiences and things that happened. She knew as a child how terrified I was of the dark and how I would, I, I slept with, I used to go and climb into bed with her till I was about 13 because I couldn't, I couldn't stay in my own bedroom because I had no control over who would come and visit in the night and it terrified me (laughs) my goodness Shane well we will we will get into that and talk more about what you were seeing as a very small child which um, laid the foundation for this astonishing encounter with your beautiful son that night but before we get into more of that I'd like you to tell us a little bit about Jamie and and what he's like Jamie's a beautiful boy he just he was troubled um, I was a young mum. I have a lot of nieces and nephews. I've been an aunt since I was about four years old, but nothing prepared me for the whirlwind that would be Jamie. <laughs> uh, Jamie was, he was really smart, just happy, vivacious, always into mischief, loved to, loved practical joke, loved to pull a prank, happy, always, always there, even in his own hurt and in his own sadness. Jamie was the kid that always always tried to make other people feel happy and, and always tried to soothe, soothe them. Um, he was highly empathic, which I think is part of, part of his own pain. I watched similar with Shanae. Shanae suffered for years with anxiety and I watched Jamie do it as well. And, and I, I truly believe that the anxiety that those two children carried wasn't their own. They, they'd draw it from other people in an in attempt to make to lessen their pain, if that makes sense. And Jamie, Jamie was so good at that. Even in his biggest hurt, he would always he'd, he'd be the clown. He'd um, fiercely, fiercely loyal, fiercely loyal person. He could mess with you, but God help anyone else that messed with you, kind of thing. Absolutely adored his younger brother and his younger sister. Him and Shanae were actually very, very close. But yeah, Brady, Brady looked up to him and admired him and Jamie, Jamie would protect them to the ends of the earth. That was, that was just the kind of kid he was. People would hurt him and he'd, he'd always find a way to forgive them. He, he was quite an amazing young man. How lovely. Now, one of the things that we know about people with this extreme empathy, which in some cases transforms into kind of psychic ability or extends into psychic ability and, and mediumship. One of the things we know about them is that sometimes they, tr- they try to dull that, that extreme empathy and that picking up of other people's hurts with drugs and alcohol. Like we oh, see. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. and one of the things I remember you telling me, Shane, when we did our original interview all those years ago, was that you said drug and alcohol abuse opens us wide to entity manifestation because our aura is badly damaged. 
I was wondering if you wanted to share more about that and how you feel that perhaps Jamie's aura, that it was damaged and, and that this is what impacted him so negatively. Oh, absolutely. Um, so it's one of the things I've discovered in my journey in this life um, is that, that there are there are parts of the spiritual world that um, that we try really hard not to focus on um, and try to, um, I want to say avoid. Avoid's not the right word, but it's, it's, a, it's a good word to have in these kinds of experiences where we, we can draw to us to the light, but we can also draw to us the darkness. And Jamie, in his hurt and in his pain, he developed a marijuana habit. And I truly believe that this opened him wide up to, to entity attachments. Entities will attach to the vulnerable, the weak, the hurt. And it's, it's I'm not 100% sure what exactly an entity or the definition, my definition of an entity is. Um, I, I believe it's some sort of lost soul that, um, that attracts and attaches to weak and vulnerable and hurt people in a way to control them. And we believe that that's what was happening to Jamie from about the age of about 14, 15, right through to, to when he actually died. We, I know through personal experience that he did have something attached to him at his death because it um, actually presented itself to me 11 days later. Yeah, so they, they, they attach and it's, it's, it's not an excuse for the behaviours that Jamie exhibited and the things that Jamie did, but it does go a long way to explaining that he wasn't always in control of himself. And again, I have experienced that myself to a degree where I've been in my body but not been in control of my body, if that makes sense. Yes, sort of an um, in-between dimensions kind of yeah, scenario. Yeah. And, and a friend of mine, Lindsay, we were actually, Lindsay had come, when I when I was in the first move to Chidlow, Lindsay had come to actually do like a bit of a cleansing on the house for me. Um, I feel energy. My sister laughs at me because I've got this obsession with washing my hands and I have sanitizer everywhere. <laughs> Even before and pandemic times. And before it was, yeah, I, I was I was hitting the sanitizer before it became cool. <laughs> <laughs> And what it is is that sometimes I can touch a person or I can touch an object or I can touch an item and I'll get a sensation or a feeling in my hands. It's not necessarily I might pick up an image or, or a feeling of something. Other times I might touch something and my hands feel dirty mm. and I have to go and wash them. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and, and Jamie, Jamie experienced the same. Jamie was an avid hand washer as well. Mm. He would say to me, we'd, we'd go to the supermarket or we'd go, we'd be in the car and um, sometimes it'd just all be too much. And he'd say, oh, it's just the noise in my head, mum. It's just like a roar. It's just like this rumble. I can't make out what it is, but it's just this, mm. this rumble. And I think for him, the, the like smoking weed and drinking was a way for him to dull that, to actually block it out and numb it. But at the same time, it made him so vulnerable that it allowed something else to come in and actually start driving his bus. You mentioned that 11 days after <coughs> Jamie's passing, you saw something of this darkness. Can you tell us about that? So what had happened was, and again, I wasn't 100% aware of what was happening to me. It was, it, was a, it was actually a really horrible, it was a horrible experience, but I had enough awareness to know that it wasn't normal and it wasn't right. 
um, and I had access to people that could help me. So um, it was it was actually it would have been about fourteen days. Jamie Jamie died. Jamie ran away on the twenty seventh of May. He died on the first of June, and he was buried on the eleventh of June. Um, so a couple of days after the funeral, um, people had finally started sort of dissipating and going back home. And because um, we, we had at one point, we had like 30 people staying in the house with us um, for weeks after Jamie's death because people travelled from Kalgoorlie where, where we're from. And there was this one moment where I'd actually gone, I'd actually gone and laid in my bed and I just, I just wanted to pull the covers over my head and sleep. I just, I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't want I just didn't want to deal. I just wanted to go to bed and pull the blankets over my head and just just rest. And I did that. And it was a quiet, it was about 11 o'clock in the day. It was quiet. And I felt this sort of pain in my left shoulder, in the back of my left shoulder. And it was like a, like a stabbing pain, but it was, again, like a burning pain. And I thought, oh, no, here we go again. Like, what's happening now? Um, and then I just had this, Oh, I, I don't, I'm shuddering. I don't, it was, just, it was just an awful, it was just an awful, disgusting feeling came over me and I sat up in bed and I thought this isn't right and I called my friend Lisa straight away and I'm like, Lisa, something, something's going on and she's, she's good where she's able to energetically connect with you so long as she's got a physical location of where you are, she can actually hone in her energies. And so what had happened was at the time of Jamie's, at the time of Jamie's accident, he'd had one of these entities or one of these things attached to him. When Jamie died, Jamie died at the scene. The boy, his friend Shane that was with him on the bike that night, he didn't die. When Jamie passed, whatever it was that was attached to Jamie had actually jumped from Jamie and went and attached itself to Shane. And then at the funeral, 11 days after, Shane was in a wheelchair. Shane actually approached me. His dad wheeled him up to me and he actually tried to stand to give me a hug. So I gave him a quick hug and then said to him, mate, you, your leg's broken. You need, to, you need to sit down. You don't need to get up to hug me. Whatever it was that had attached to Jamie had jumped to Shane. When I hugged Shane at the funeral, that that energy, that entity, whatever you want to call it, sensed Jamie's essence in me and it actually jumped from Shane to me. This and is what so Lisa told you on the phone that night? Yeah, Lisa was explaining to me what was happening because she was actually in the process. While she was explaining to me, she was in the process of removing it and getting rid of it. So that's essentially what had happened. Whatever had been attached to Jamie jumped to Shane and then jumped from Shane to me. But because I'd had so many people staying with us and there were so many people in the house, there hadn't really been opportunity for me to be alone. So it waited until I was alone before it made its move. And, and as I said, I'm, I'm fortunate that I'm able to have, I've got people that um, I, I understand like a fraction of what they understand. So I'm fortunate I'm able to have people that can actually clear that kind of thing away for me. Your story reminds me of one of the the very earliest near-death experience accounts that came out in the 20th century was by a man called George Ritchie, who went on to be a doctor. He tells just an incredibly detailed account of his near-death experience. And one of the things he says really reminds me of what you're saying about the drugs and the alcohol and the entities. He said that within his NDE, as he was being shown 
all sorts of aspects about life, his life, about humanity. He saw, like he hovered over a scene of a cityscape and bars and drunken drunken people inside the bars, but they had entities on them who were just people. Spirits, spirit people who knew no better. They just knew no better. So they'd passed on in the throes of their addiction and they were still unaware, unaware of their passing and wanting to feel that addiction. And so going to the person at the bar and sort of sort of drinking through them, smoking through them. Yeah, absolutely. This is what George Ritchie describes. And it's, I mean, it boggles the brain, doesn't it? But it does, it has some resonance with what you're saying, Shane. It, it it actually used to terrify me. Now I'm I'm also aware that if I choose not to focus on that, then those kind of experiences happen less. Yes, it is about our attention, isn't it, and where we put yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And and a, a friend of mine gave me a really cool saying. It was that energy flows where your conscious goes. So yeah, that's a good one to keep in mind. Now, you had that experience, which I I didn't actually know that story, so thank you for sharing that. But you had some other moments that were a bit more positive. Certainly you had a dream. It might have even been before that, Shane. You had a dream that Jamie was in a better place. He seemed to be more at peace considering how he'd been in that last moment that you'd seen him by the pool. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, he came me and, and it would have been around the time that Tanya had crossed him over and I think it was his way of just coming and checking in and letting me know and he looked he looked he looked happy looked healthy and he was saying like I'm okay mum and he actually <laughs> he actually let me know that he approved of the songs that we'd chosen for his funeral and that he really liked the cool idea we had we, we actually had a white casket and when his friends came in, we'd, we'd had the, the idea that we gave them all a Sharpie and told them to just tag it up, just, you know, write all over it, write your messages and all the rest of it. So, oh, yeah, he actually popped in, popped in to let us know that he, he was having a pretty cool funeral. So that was in a dream. You saw him in a dream. Yeah, day. yeah. yeah he, um, he used to visit me a lot. I'd had one dream that sticks in my mind and it kind of freaked me out the first few times that I had it because it was just so bizarre. But... We'd be at a, in, a, in a chapel, in like a, a church chapel, and his casket would be stood upright and he would be in the casket and we would all be sitting in the pews and the priest would be delivering his sermon and Jamie would sort of like look up and look around and be like waving and like, and like this and winking and I'm like, he's just giving letting you us the thumbs up. <laughs> yeah, giving us the thumbs up. And it, it, like I said, the first couple of times I had it, it kind of freaked me out. I was like, that's just the weirdest thing I've ever experienced, which clearly it's not, but in my mind at, at that time. And um, and I remember thinking to myself later after I'd had I'm like, he's just letting me know that he's not here physically, but nothing's changed. So around that time that Jamie passed away, Shane, You had been experiencing, you and your whole family had been experiencing a really rough trot. So he was the fourth loved one in a year that your family lost. Is that right? He was, he was, we'd we'd lost a few people. I'd lost a close friend from school that had um, drowned in an accident in Esperance at the beach. And we'd lost a couple of of family members, older family members from the East Coast. Um, The most significant thing around Jamie's death, I think, is the dates. 
as I mentioned earlier, he he left, he ran away on the, the 30th anniversary of the passing of my dad. Um, he actually died on the 30th anniversary of my dad's funeral. <laughs> and um yeah, so there was and and in between in in between the 27th of May and the 1st of June you've got my mum's birthday which is the 31st of May so there were there's a lot of dates a lot of dates and significant dates my sister's 40th birthday was the 9th of June that year and that was the date that they actually wanted the funeral home wanted to have Jamie's funeral on the Saturday and I said no that's it was my sister's 40th birthday they also, they wanted to have the funeral on the Saturday, but they weren't going to be able to do the cremation until the Monday. And to me, that was, I, I, I had a, this feeling that you can't have his celebration of his life and then leave him for two days. Like for me, it all kind of had to be, you know, it all had to be sort of done on, on the day. But there, there were a lot of dates around his little, his younger sister on his dad's side had actually, was actually born on the, on on the 27th of May as well so there were also the year leading up to the year prior you know within that sort of year we lost Steve Irwin and we lost Peter Brock the reason I mention that is when Steve Irwin passed the I'm an avid Triple J listener and when Steve Irwin passed there was a song that that they played on the radio um, and it's a song by the Butterfly Effect that's called Gone um, and it was the first time I'd ever heard that song. What's it called? Um, it's called Gone, Gone by the Butterfly Effect. And that they played that, someone played that on Triple J as tribute to Steve Irwin the day he died. And that song would become another one of those synchronicities that would kind of follow our family for the next year. I mentioned my friend that had drowned in Esperance. On the day that she drowned, or before I'd found out that she drowned, we were actually driving. I think we'd gone into Wattle Grove. We were coming from Wattle Grove to Forest Field. We'd been to visit my sister and to visit Jamie. And we'd pulled up at the traffic lights, which is the actual traffic lights where Jamie had been, was, was killed months later. And this song came on the radio, this butterfly effect. And I'm like, oh, and it, it had happened a couple of times where this song, I'd hear this song and then something something would happen or I would get news of some sort. And we pulled up at the lights this night and this song's come on the radio and I've looked at Brady in the passenger seat and I've gone, yeah, I don't get a good feeling about this. Something's, something's about to happen and sort of just continued on with it. And the next morning I got my mum rang me and let me know that, um, that my friend Jodie had died the day before she'd been drowned in Esperance. And I said to mum, I kind of had a feeling something was going to happen. I heard that song again the day that Peter Brock died and I was actually driving up through the hills. Peter Brock died less than 10 kilometres from where I currently live. And I remember seeing the helicopters and all the rest of it and then like, oh, and this song's come on the radio and going like, yeah, something bad's just gone down. And it was, it was Targa Rally, so I'm driving through the roadblocks as they block off the hills and all the rest of it. But, yeah, the, the kind of like the whole year, and it, it was a popular song. It was a new song. It was popular. So it, it was on the radio a lot, but it wasn't one that I heard a lot. I just had this, again, developed this sense that when I'd hear that song, something, that song was playing the day that Jane died when I was driving home from the Mundaring Police Station when I saw the crows. <laughs> so we actually played that song as the opening song at Jamie's funeral and 
the only time I hear it now is if it comes up in my Spotify list. It's not a song that I hear, you know, very regularly and it's the charge is gone. I don't get the charge from that song anymore. So that was kind of a, yeah, another one of those, those I don't know if it was a tell or a sign or something mm. that something, someone telling me to be aware. My best friend Daph had died a couple of months before Jamie and I'd hear that song when I'd think of Daph. So I don't know if it was Daph's way of telling me that something, something was going to happen. The last time Jamie was home the week before he ran away, um, my friend Lisa and Lindsay had been up and they were doing some Reiki sessions on us and doing a Reiki session on Jamie and then did a Reiki session on me. And I had another experience, and this is the week before he ran away, so two weeks before he died, where Daph kind of tried to attach and she'd, she'd passed and she'd been passed for a few months. And, and that kind of gutted Jamie because Daph was one of the few people in the community that actually gave Jamie a chance knowing his history. So she owned a secondhand shop and she used to employ him to like clean up around the, the front and tidy the garden beds and move furniture and stuff. So him and Daph had developed quite a close relationship. And my first year in Chidlow, she was pretty much the only person I knew. I used to go and have, I'd drop the kids to school and have coffee with her at the shop every day and then go home and do whatever I needed to do. So while I'm having this Reiki session, I've, and I've said to her, Lindsay was doing my Reiki session, and I've said to her, hey, like, I don't like, I don't know what's going on, but I've got this pain in my shoulder and it, it feels like, like it's, it feels like Daphne. And she's like, oh, and she's like, yeah, I don't know what she's doing, but she's being really naughty. And I think that Daph was trying to tell me that she knew something was going to happen. Mm. She was trying to warn me from the other side. That's fascinating. And I remember too that one of the things you said to me when we did the original interview and you were telling me about all of these tragedies that had come before Jamie, you said a lot of experiences I've had in my life growing up have all led me to prepare for Jamie's passing. And I thought that's fascinating. And I, I wonder if we can talk about that. And we will come back to Jamie because he's continued to appear to you in ways that let you know that he's continuing to yeah. evolve and grow in the spirit world, which is just wonderful. And I'd love to hear about that. But for, for the moment, I'd like to shift gears and just talk about you what you'd been experiencing all your life that had prepared you for this moment in retrospect? So my, my earliest memory was being in Alice Springs. I was actually born in Katoomba in New South Wales. And when we were two, my dad's half-sister and her husband were running the Pines Motel in Alice Springs. And dad was a musician, so dad was an entertainer and mum, mum was like a hotel cook. So his sister had rang and said, hey, um, and dad, dad was troubled. Dad had alcohol problems and stuff like that so his sister had rang and said hey we've, we've taken over management of this hotel of this motel we get all the opal miners from Cuba PD and whatnot they all come in and stay we get the main roads workers we need you know we need someone behind the bar we need someone in the kitchen so um, mum and dad packed us five kids up when I was two and we moved to Alice Springs <laughs> which is <coughs> back then was pretty interesting there was no nothing there really the gang used to come in once a fortnight and drop off supplies and that was pretty much it and we had a dog named Ferdinand that was my dad's dog and he was I was two so Ferdinand was four he was two years older than me 
And he was kind of my best friend. And I just used to go and play and hang out with Ferdinand all the time. And it was around Dad Dad passed. We would, we'd been in Alice Springs nearly a year when Dad passed. Um, Dad was in, a, in a, an accident where he was, he was burned. And um, he passed. And it was around that time that I developed my imaginary friend <laughs> named mm-hmm. Sarah. There was a little blonde girl and she would have been about five or six, I suppose, and I was three. Um, and so I used to play with Ferdinand and I used to play with Sarah all the time. Um, and then we we left. My mum met my stepfather, Jim, um, when I was four and we moved. We actually left Alice Springs and we moved across to, he invited our, our family to come and live with him in Kalgoorlie, um, which is how we ended up in Kalgoorlie. And um, mum and Jim married a couple of days before my fifth birthday. So, um, but all throughout my childhood, um, I had this friend, Sarah, and um, we lived with my, with my dad. I, I called him my dad, Jim, because he was my dad for 40 years. <laughs> we lived with Jim for about five years and then mum and he separated. I was kind of okay because it didn't matter what happened or what, you know, I always had Sarah. Sarah was my, my confidence. Sarah was my best friend. Sarah, Sarah looked out for me. Sarah actually protected me. She was everything. The, the only problem with Sarah is that no one else could see her. No one else could hear her. And to you, did she look just like a physical little girl sitting there playing? Yeah, my my earliest memories of Sarah of a little blonde-haired girl that um, she wore like a nice, sunny, flowery dress, you know, summer summer cottony dress, which I thought was a bit weird in winter. Yeah, so she sort of, she looked after me. Sarah looked after me a lot. When Once once mum and, mum and Jim had separated and we bought the house in Boulder out in King Street, that's my earliest memory of, of being in King Street. So I was 10 by then. I remember Sarah. I remember, not so much I remember, but I've had stories told to me of where I was when I was a little girl. I'd be sitting in the lounge room, seemingly distracted, playing with a doll or, or doing something. Um, and Jim would say, he'd walk in and the TV would be on and he'd say, I wonder who's winning the golf. And I'd say, oh, it's the guy in the, the white pants with the blue stripe or whatever. And he'd be like, oh, whatever, you know, you're, you're a little kid sitting, you're not even watching the television. And then he'd say, it'd be on the news that night that, you know, they'd say this is the winner of the golf and it'd be the man wearing the white pants with the blue stripe. Or he'd ask, you know, where, where was something, car keys and things like that. And I'd say, oh, yeah, they're in there. I saw them, you know, they're in the laundry. And um, mum would be like, you haven't been out the back door all day. And I'm like, yeah, but they're in the laundry. So um, stories like that that I would be told that I just I had an ability to find things or knew where things were that had been misplaced. Or, and then it became that I was probably the one who was doing it. And I'd say, no, it wasn't me, it was Sarah. So that became the big joke in the house was that if, um, if anything was misplaced or moved or um, if I did something naughty, then I'd blame it on Sarah. Um, and as an adult, I'm kind of starting to understand that nine times out of ten, it probably was Sarah. I just got the blame for it because Sarah wasn't real. <laughs> yes. So you have come to to know that Sarah was a little spirit child, and there's a there's an amazing twist to this, which is that your children went on to see her as well without having yeah. any knowledge that you had had these experiences as a child. Is that right, Shane? Yeah. So as as I got older and 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 was convinced 
by my peers that Sarah didn't exist and that I was probably making it all up, which I got a lot. I got a lot throughout my childhood and, and early adult, and especially growing up in the Catholic Church. Like, that's just not, you know, that's, that's not real or, or whatever. So my kids would often talk. Jamie, Jamie never mentioned Sarah by name, but he'd talk about a little blonde girl and he'd talk about the dress. And I'd get a glimpse or a flicker in my mind of, of familiarity or a bit of deja vu. And I glimpsed her a couple of times. But again, when, when, when you, for me specifically, as I, as I approached and reached adulthood and was, was told enough that these were fantasies and that I was making things up and that it wasn't real and that it couldn't be possible. I, I kind of stopped interacting with Sarah, but she remained with the family. Jamie would talk about it. Jamie had a couple of other friends, one that he called Michael and one that he called Strawberry, and they lived in the washing machine. <laughs> and he'd talk about, Jamie would talk about, he wouldn't, he never mentioned Sarah by name, but he'd talk about a little blonde girl. And then as Braden got older, he'd be like, oh, yeah, I saw her. She was like outside our bedroom or, or whatever. And then Shanae, it wasn't until Shanae was about five and Shanae, we were living in the house in Chidlow and Shanae started talking about Sarah. And I, I rang mum and I said to mum, did I have like an imaginary friend when I was a kid named Sarah? And mum's gone, oh, my God, Sarah was just such a mischief maker. She used to do all the, you know, all these things and all this mischief you got up to and you used to blame everything on Sarah. And part of me knew then that Sarah was as, as real as what I I'd, I'd thought when mm -hmm. I was a little girl. So, again, enlisted the help of my good friend Lindsay. Around that time, Shanae was picking up lost souls, children, and giving them a safe haven in her bedroom um, because they had nowhere else to go. And she's, Shanae's highly empathic and Shanae was very, very, very introvert, more so after Jamie passed. So she took it upon herself, and I don't know if it was influenced by Sarah, but they started gathering lost souls and um, we got Lindsay in. And so roughly 31 years after Sarah first appeared in my life, we actually crossed her over. Do you think she was perhaps an ancestor in your family? I'm not sure if she, I don't know that she was an ancestor. I know that she came to me in Alice Springs and I know that she came to me when my dad died. So I, I don't know if, again, if it was that, that vulnerability that allowed, you know, she was a small child, I was a small child. I don't know if it was she was possibly a lost soul that, that wanted and needed companionship. And so in my pain and my hurt, we comforted each other. Oh, look, I have interviewed uh, many women that report similar stories and there have been a few on my podcast, but there seems to be a link between uh, a child who is enduring some form of trauma or grief, yeah. or both, yeah. and then the appearance of a spirit child to comfort them. Like it's just yeah. an extraordinary thing, which I've heard of before, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so Sarah remained with me for over 30 years and then I felt really awful because I was like, oh, my God, I've ignored this little spirit child. <laughs> but she had, she had my children as company and um, so I, I think I, I, I'm not sure I'm not I'm not sure what the, how how the evolution works on this side of the veil mm -hmm. um but perhaps Sarah Sarah evolved into a guardian type role um and just stayed with the family because it was all she knew 
Um, she'd been with us for so long. So, and I actually remember, I actually felt, I actually felt her leave, which I thought was really, really interesting. It was like a, a, a picture, an image of a, wisp, a wispy blonde hair just sort of dissolving and a, like an extra beat in my heart, like an extra couple of beats in my heart. And I knew, I knew that she was gone and I knew that she was okay after not remembering her for, for so many years. That's very beautiful, Shane. Now, it wasn't just Sarah, though, when you were little. I remember you telling me about the elderly couple that would materialise at the foot of your bed in the old house that you lived in yeah, in Kalgoorlie. They were so creepy. Tell us about them. Um, I just, I remember, so that was, that was would have been after Mum and Jim separated. That was in the house in King Street. And Mum, Mum's still living in that house, actually. And that house is 90 years old now. Um and I remember just waking up one night because I, I don't know, I just, just woke up and there's this old people standing at the end of my bed. And I, I knew it wasn't my grandparents because my grandparents were still alive and on the other side of the country. Um, but there was an old lady and she was in like a, um, I don't know, I want to say Sunday best, but she was in like a, a long tweed type skirt and jacket and, you know, blouse and grey curly hair and a man he's in a like a not a not a suit but like a pants and jacket and and they're just sort of standing at the end of my bed and as like a nine ten year old child that was horrifying for me because I wasn't sure if I was dreaming or as an adult in hindsight they actually they actually didn't mean me any harm I think they were just there because they could sense that I could see they would appear and they'd, they'd literally just stand at the end of my bed. They never spoke. They never made any gestures or moved towards me. They just, they would just stand at the corner of the end of my bed and sort of stare at me. It was freaky, which is what led to me running and sleeping in my sister's room all the time. So they would um, frequently? Yeah, they'd, they'd come like at least once a week, once a fortnight. Um, I'd hear other things. I'd hear like a baby crying at the back door. Um, and I'd walk through the creek through the house or I'd go and get my sister and drag her through the house and be like, there's a baby outside the door. And she'd be like, don't be stupid, it's just cats. And it's like, no. And she wouldn't hear it, but I would hear it. And between our bedrooms, at the side of the house, outside the house, between mine and her bedrooms was a fence and a gate. And I would hear the gate open all the time at night and I'd be go to my mum and be like, mum, someone's opened the gate. We've got a prowler. And mum would be, don't be stupid. And so she'd send one of my sisters or my brother out and they'd, the gate would be closed and the gate would be locked. But there were definitely people in our house and there were definitely people that were coming in and out the side gate between our bedrooms. Because the fence was attached to the wall of the house, it wasn't just the noise of the gate. You'd actually feel the vibration of the, on the wall and my bed was up in the, in that corner. So I spent many, many a, a week growing up. I lived in that house from the age of nine till I was about 18, rearranging and reconfiguring my bedroom to keep my bed away from windows and away from the corner. And, and so, yeah, it was, um, yeah, but the, the old people, I, I don't, I don't know what, why they were there or what their purpose was. I just know that they used to freak me out. Well, that would be a frightening thing to see as a, as a little girl. I'm just thinking it, it almost sounds like you were somehow tapping into 
scenes that had happened with you know in that 90 year old home whether it's a baby a newborn crying or whether it's someone yeah. coming in and out of that gate things that would have happened day in day and, out and that's that's what I mean about when I say with my need to wash my hands and stuff yeah. I can go somewhere and energetically pick up on a vibration that might be the weird thing is, is it might be a past event, it might be a current event, or it might be a future event. It's, mm-hmm. it's never, I never really know until I, I experience a lot of deja vu. We're in our house, we jokingly call it the glitch in the matrix. So do you think the old couple might have been attached to the house or do you think they I might? Think, yeah. I think they definitely were because yeah. I, was, I was up, I was at mum's house must have been not long before we moved to Perth and I was at mum's house visiting one day and there was a knock on the door we only knew the history of the family that mum had bought the house off there was a knock at the door and there was an old lady and she was very apologetic very very lovely but she said oh I'm so sorry to disturb you she said I'm I'm over visiting from the east coast and she said I'm just wondering my mum and dad built this house in 1929 and I was just wondering, every time I get the chance to come to town, I try and, and go through, like, have a look at the house. So it was really cool. So mum, I'm like, yeah, come on in. And mum's like, looking, she's like, who's, I'm like, oh, her parents built the house, mum. She's just asked if she can come and have, you know. So that was really cool to actually sit with her. And, and obviously the house has grown a bit and changed a bit since, since it was first built. But the house itself basically was, apart from our decorating and changing carpets and things like that, the house is essentially the same as what it was when it was built all those years ago. So, again, as an adult wondering were they her her parents that were just coming to let me know that they were, you know, this was their home. Did you tell that lady about them, that you saw them? I didn't. No, (laughs) no, I didn't. Because, again, that's my upbringing and my experiences this is not something that I just talked with, talk, you know, about with anybody. I had a lot of friends that understand and I have a lot of people that think I'm crazy. So <laughs> and for a long time. That. Yeah, Shane. A long time I actually thought I was crazy. But for many years I just thought, no, you're just like you're just nuts, Shane. Like this isn't this isn't reality. Um, well, it wouldn't help to have that that sort of drummed into you through the schooling system that it's yeah not not right that you know that there's guilt and shame even around that oh system. there's a massive guilt and shame especially like growing up in the Catholic Church and and the the thing that I again as an adult I don't understand is that we're we're asked to believe in the visitations of Jesus after he died in the three days um, and then he rose from the dead where where it's it's drummed into you that this this is a reality that this actually happened but I can't talk about the ghost friend that I've dragged around with me for 30 years and a lot of people a lot of people just don't understand because it's frightening it's some some of the some of the experiences I've had have been truly frightening as I've gotten older and grown and learned a lot from my experiences I find a lot of things less frightening. And again, it comes back to where I choose to let my focus go. And I wonder, while you, just now while we're talking about your Catholic schooling and I guess the negative effects of what remains with you from that, I wonder if there's anything positive that you drew from it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It It instilled in me a sense of faith. 
that, that there is something out there, that there is something bigger than us and that, and that I am a part of it um, and I can choose how, how, I, how I am a part of that. So, um, yeah, no, it, it wasn't all. I think it was, it was the, um, the, the guilt and the shame and, and stuff like that with the things that, I, um, that I've dealt with over the years. But, um, but overall, my experience at Catholic school um, helped me to have that faith and helped me to have that hope and helped me to, to understand that there, there is definitely much bigger out there than just us. Church, chapel actually at times were a place that I could go and sit quietly and read a book. In my primary school, we actually had um, our primary school expanded and it took over and actually took over a portion of a nursing home because it backed onto a nursing home. And as part of that came a chapel that it, the chapel was too small for the school to use for any purposes. But quite often, a lot of my friends and I would just go and hang out and sit in the chapel because it was quiet. It was peaceful. That Again, it comes back to perhaps that's where I developed that, that sort of that peace that I seemed to be able to carry with me because I, I had, I've always had an awareness that it's, it's bigger than me. It's greater than what, than what we understand and what we believe. And that would have definitely come in the foundations of my, of my Catholic churches. We had some beautiful nuns growing up through right through the school. They were so kind and so compassionate and, and understanding. We had one um, sister Anne in year ten. She was really cool. We'd um, she was one of our maths teachers, and she just had an ability. We'd go into the classroom sometimes, and she'd look at the class, and you got thirty frazzled kids, and she'd be like, "Yeah, we're not doing maths today." And she'd actually lead us through meditation. So um, you know, we had some really cool, yeah, really cool people growing up that were, were able to show me other ways and better ways and different ways to, to what I was experiencing at home. So been very, very fortunate to have some amazing people in my life that have been able to, to steer, me, steer me in other directions. And Shane, what I wanted to ask you about was I remember you telling me that lost souls, young people, deceased young people would flock to you almost on a daily basis at one point. Yeah. I wonder, was this before or after Jamie's passing? Yeah, that's that's been kind of a regular, that's been a regular thing for me. That's possibly where Sinead picked the habit up from. You know, I, I could be driving, I could be driving into town and I'd see like a kid. I remember one time driving down, I was driving into Perth, driving down the hill into Perth and seeing a kid in like the middle and the median strip, which is bush because it's we're in the hills. And he's wearing a basketball shirt and basketball pants and he's walking along and I'm thinking that's really odd. That's an odd place to be walking and then having the realisation that he actually wasn't there. I had, I had an experience after Jamie died. I was living in a house in Parkerville and Jeff was away and Sinead was in bed with me actually. She was about eight. And about one o'clock in the morning there's this constant rapping on my bedroom window and I'm just like, oh, my God, like who's, out there and I've sort of jumped up and I've pulled the the curtain across and there's no one there and then having an awareness that it was a young woman who was maybe 18 19 um and again that's sort of and I'm like yeah I don't have the emotional bandwidth to deal with this right now you need to leave and I'll contact someone in the morning when it's daylight who can come and assist you and it was a couple of days later, I'd rang again, rang Lisa the next morning and said, yeah, there's some 
chick banging on my bedroom window at night. I don't, I don't know how to help her. I don't. You know, this is probably not even 18 months after Jamie died. And I just wasn't available, really, not even to myself at that point. And then finding out a couple of days later that about half an hour before she'd started knocking on my window, this young woman had been killed in a car accident about a kilometre from my house. So I get a lot of, not so much now because I've, as I've, as I've healed and grown, I'm able to set boundaries now, which is something that I was never able to do. So I'm able to set boundaries and set the conditions under which I'm prepared to, to help someone either on this side or the other side of the veil back then I was just again because I was vulnerable and grieving it was just a it was a free for all so I definitely exacerbated after Jamie died that I just have all these random young people rocking up and, and they were just seeking the mother energy they were just seeking comfort or again I, I think it's the awareness that I might not be able to help them directly but I had access to people that would be able to help them and part of that was in my grief and in my hurt I must have been sending out some sort of signal. So Shane it, it certainly appears that Shanae has inherited your gift and we've we've got all of that to talk about as well as everything else that's happened with Jamie visiting you since his passing and everything that you've learnt since that awful night. So what I'm thinking is that we'll come back and record part two next week. How does that sound? Yeah sounds good. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on Spirit Sisters today. And we're going to pick up where we left off next week. But thank you so much, Shane. What a delight to speak to one of the original voices from Spirit Sisters. Thanks for having me. Thank you. See you next week. Thank you for listening to Spirit Sisters, the podcast based on my best-selling book of the same name. I really hope you enjoyed this episode and will join me again next time for another intriguing conversation exploring mysteries and marvels. In the meantime, please subscribe so that you won't miss an episode. I also welcome your feedback, so please message me through my website, karinamachado.com, or find me on Facebook at Karina Machado Author. Perhaps you have your own encounter to share. If so, I'd love to hear it. After all, there's nothing more powerful than a story. Music.